Many of you, if you read through the Bible in a year, when you get to Isaiah, you do pretty well all the way up to chapter 12. And then when you get to these chapters, where it's just one oracle after another, one nation after another, that's where maybe you start to skip forward a little bit. Well, we're going to take a look at it over the course of the next three weeks, beginning here in 13 and ending in chapter 27. Today, we're going to consider chapter 13 all the way through chapter 20, but we're going to consider it primarily through chapter 13 and that beginning part of chapter 14. It's the lens by which we're going to understand everything else. One of the common questions that are asked today As people look at the geopolitical landscape and they consider demagogues and dictators, as they consider wars and threats of wars, and they consider all of the horrors, 20th century was unique in that it was the first set of wars that were caught in picture immediately and sent out to everybody through the media, and people were able to very quickly see the horrors of war in a way that we were never able to see it before. And naturally, the question arises, where is God in all of this? Why would God allow this? Does he even allow it? Is it just that man is free and autonomous and God is up there just waiting and hoping and crossing his fingers? Then maybe we'll get it figured out one day. That we can be prone to anxiety and fear Then perhaps some of you looking forward to this upcoming election season. You think about perhaps some of the the gradual drifting left, the continual drifting left of the Democratic Party and and the drifting farther right of the Republican Party. And you see this division in our own country. And what's evident in Washington seems to be true across our entire nation. And perhaps it's a source of anxiety for you. What is going to happen to us? Where are we going to be in a year? Where are we going to be in five years, in 10 years, in 30 years? What kind of country will my children inherit? Perhaps it's a question that you ask. I think all of those questions have answers, ways for us to think about them and other questions in this section of Isaiah. Because what we're going to see in all of these oracles of judgment against the nations is really this one big idea. If you're taking notes, this would be kind of my sermon in a sentence. Really, it's two sentences, but they're short. That God fulfills his plan by governing and judging the nations. God fulfills his plan by governing and judging the nations. Therefore... Trust in him alone for salvation. Trust in him alone for salvation. One more time, all the way through. God fulfills his plan by governing and judging the nations. Therefore, trust in him alone for salvation. Before we dive in, let me give you a little context. Chapters 1 through 12 begin by focusing on Judah, and they end with a proclamation to the nations. Chapters 13 through 27 begin by focusing on the nations and then ends with a proclamation to Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. For some of you who perhaps may not be familiar, God redeemed his people Israel, set them in the land, and yet through the sin of kings, the nation was divided, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Isaiah primarily has a ministry to the southern kingdom of Judah, and that's who he's writing to here. So these chapters, chapters 13 all the way through 27, begin by focusing on the nations. What is God doing with all of these nations, Babylon and Assyria and Moab and Egypt and all of these nations? And then it's going to end with a proclamation, a promise to Judah. But the message throughout all of these chapters is essentially the same. Salvation is found in the Lord alone. Salvation is found in the Lord alone. Just historically speaking, Assyria is Judah's main adversary during Isaiah's ministry. If you glance forward, you can see that they are going to be quickly mentioned over the course of three verses at the end of chapter 14. That's in verses 24 to 27. 
But all of the nations that are going to be mentioned in this section, that is Babylon and Assyria here in 13 and 14, Moab in 15 and 16, Damascus in 17 and 18, and Egypt in 19 and 20, all of these nations, all of them were in one way or another threatened by Assyria. And so as you look at the geopolitical landscape in the Fertile Crescent, all of these nations essentially serve as actual or potential partners with Judah in all of their anti-Assyrian alliances. Assyria is coming against us. They're stronger than us. We need to ally ourselves with other nations so that we can defend ourselves against Assyria. And all of these nations are nations that Judah either actually aligned with or was tempted to align with. But in all of these, what we're going to see in the oracles of judgment against each one of these nations is God telling Judah that they should not fear Assyria and they should not trust in alliances. No, instead they should fear God and they should trust Him alone. You notice if you just sweep through chapter 13 and 14, Assyria is lumped in with an oracle against Babylon. And that's because the oracle against Babylon, which we're going to look at primarily in chapter 13, is the key to understanding God's purposes with Assyria in Isaiah's day. And it's also the key to understanding God's purposes in all of the nations that follow Moab and Damascus and Egypt. So mostly today what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time in Isaiah 13. Some of you came in, you go, oh, Pastor Jeff's preaching eight chapters. We're going to be here till Tuesday. Well, no, we're not. We are only going to look at chapter 13, maybe a little bit at the beginning of verse 14. Because if you're going to understand everything that follows, you've got to understand this chapter. And if you understand this chapter, then you can go through the rest of these chapters and the rest of these oracles and know exactly what's going on. Because essentially, every single one of these oracles is the same sermon about the same thing. It's the same message dealing with the same content, and that is two things. That is God's sovereign government over the nations. He is sovereign over the nations. And secondly, God's judgments are terrifying and true. That is the rhythmic beat beginning here in 13, going all the way through chapter 20. With Babylon and Assyria, with Moab, with Damascus, with Egypt, God is sovereign over the nations, and His judgment is true, and it is terrifying. And that's exactly what we see here in chapter 13. Then in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that first truth, that God governs the nations. And then we're going to see, secondly, in verses 6 through the end of chapter 13, that is verse 22, we're going to see that God's judgments are terrifying and true. And in all of this, I hope that we're able to raise our eyes off of the, off of the unnerving content of this passage, and we are able to gaze upon Christ and trust Him further. One of the reasons that I think pastors should preach sequentially through books of the Bible is because it means that we can't avoid the harder controversial parts of the Bible. That we can't just preach on the things that we prefer or that we like or that we think are immediately applicable to the questions that are being asked by our congregation. There are going to be times where we have to come together, sit under God's word, preach things that perhaps in our flesh make us a little bit uncomfortable, and, and are answering questions that we're not asking but should be. That's what Isaiah 13 through 20 is doing. And so we want to approach this test, text in the spirit of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. Isaiah 13 to 20 is no different than John 3.16 in terms of its profitability to the Christian. So we come to the text aiming and praying to be profited spiritually so that we would love God more and be aimed to love others more to His glory. And I'm just going to admit as a pastor, I'm a little fearful and have been of this passage. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time before we dive in.
Father, help me to trust you, to trust your word, and that this word is the word that we need to hear today. Make me faithful to it. Help me to not pull punches. Help me to apply it in a way that is faithful, that we would hope and cling to Christ even more. Oh, help me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We notice at the very beginning of verse 1, chapter 13, we see the oracle that Isaiah saw. That word oracle in Hebrew can be translated burden. Some of you have been around the church for a while. You've heard old-time preachers talk about having a burden of the Lord, that I am burdened for something. They would say that if, if something was laid on their heart and they needed to preach it to their congregation, they'd say, I've got a burden from the Lord. Well, that's the same thing that we see here with Isaiah. It's an oracle, a burden that Isaiah, notice this, saw. So what Isaiah is speaking is something that he has already seen played out. It's a vision that was given to him, a prophetic vision given to him by God, specifically for the sake of stating his promises, declaring who he is and what he's doing among the nations. And we're going to see here that Oracle in verses 13 to 20, it's going to be used four times in, in these eight chapters. And each time it's mentioned is a new section relating to a new nation. We see it here at the beginning of chapter 13, and it's concerning primarily Babylon and also Assyria. We see it again in 15.1, an oracle against Moab. A couple chapters later in chapter 17, we see it against Damascus. And then we see it finally in chapter 19 in an oracle against Egypt. And in every single one of them, it is the burden of Isaiah to take the judgment which the Lord has revealed to them concerning these nations and preach really hard messages to people who aren't going to want to hear it. He is burdened to preach what he has seen. And what he has seen, according to verse 1, is an oracle concerning Babylon. And the question that immediately arises is, why Babylon? Because at this point in Isaiah's ministry, Babylon is not a world power, not like Assyria. In fact, that wouldn't happen for another hundred plus years. And so, for example, it might say, it might be like us today talking about how Mexico is ruling the known world. That's nothing against Mexico. Nobody talks about Mexico as ruling the world. Not that it's not a legitimate nation. It's just not a formidable nation in light of the mega powers in the world. It'd be the same way. So when Isaiah is talking about Babylon, he's talking about it that way. Wait, why are we talking about Babylon? Babylon's that country that's over on the other side of Assyria. Assyria is the big deal right now. Well, the reason is because Isaiah's vision is not primarily political, it's theological. That all throughout redemptive history, we see that Babylon is God's worst enemy. That begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, that Babel, the city of Babylon, is at the center of human pride and error and rebellion. And we see that chapter 11, God in his judgment spreads out and confuses all of their languages. And then the question becomes at the end of Genesis 11, how is God going to regather into one people what he has scattered? And at the very beginning of chapter 12, he gives a promise. He calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless the nations among you. How is God going to regather? It's going to be through a seed that's promised to Abraham. And the rest of the Bible is all about the preservation of that seed among the nations until it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, we see those same attitudes that were present in Babel, that is, of pride and error and arrogance and rebellion. It's present here in chapter 13 as well concerning the nation of Babylon. In fact, Isaiah's day, we are talking about Assyria, not Babylon. And that's why you have at the end of chapter 14, Assyria is kind of tagged on to this oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon isn't a superpower. Assyria is. Babylon wouldn't become a superpower to more than 100 years after Isaiah's death. They would do so under the, they would emerge as a world power under wicked rulers such as Nebuchadnezzar. 
But then we see that they're quickly removed from the world stage. They don't last for much more than a century. And so here we're looking at Assyria, but we're considering the spirit of Babylon that is present in Assyria. And oh, by the way, it's also present in Moab. It's also present in Damascus. And it's also present in Egypt. So what we're seeing is Babylon is the lens, the framework by which we're to understand who all of these other nations are and why God is dealing with them in the way that he is. And so Babylon has been God's worst enemy from Genesis 11. We see it here in Isaiah 13 and 14. And we see it all the way into the New Testament as well. You may remember Peter in, in, in 1 Peter 5. He, he writes on behalf of the church, on behalf of she who is in Babylon. Wait a minute, what is Peter talking about? Babylon had long ceased to exist as a nation. Well, Peter, just like the New Testament authors, saw Rome as the new Babylon. Rome was the Babylon that, that embodied the greed and the arrogance and the rebellion against God. And so the church is a community of sojourners and exiles in the midst of Babylon. And that's the same thing that we find from John in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 17 and following. That Babylon is, is the image under which the whole world system that is rebelling against God is summed up. And has aimed itself against God's glory and against God's people and against God's son. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we find this great battle between God and Babylon. And only one character is left standing on the stage. And it's not Babylon, it's the church. And so what we see is this thread of Babylon all through the Bible. And the reason that Isaiah is beginning with Babylon, even though they are irrelevant in the geopolitical stage at this point. It's because even though nations will come and go, Assyria, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, nations will come and go, but there will always be another Babylon. So he wants us to understand everything happening in these eight chapters through the lens of the spirit of Babylon. That is the spirit of pride and of pomp and of arrogance and of rebellion against God. And of course, in all of that, he's telling Judah, if God is going to bring judgment against these nations, why would you trust them and not his promises? So God's going to unfold all of this. And every single one of these oracles, that is to Babylon here in chapter 13 and 14, by implication, Assyria, Moab in chapters 15 and 16, Damascus and Cush in 17 and 18, and Egypt in 19 and 20, the whole section, all of them have to do with Babylon in this spiritual sense. And so every single one of these oracles are historical judgments with eschatological implications. Eschatology is concerned with the last things. That each one of these nations embody the spirit of Babylon. And God's judgment against Babylon in chapter 13 and 14 not only typifies God's judgment against each of these other nations, but ultimately against all of his enemies in the day of the Lord at the end of the age. And what God is doing in these nations is giving us little three-dimensional prophecies, patterns for us to look at and go, oh, that is kind of like what God is going to do to the whole world at the end of the age. And he's going to give one over and over and over. In other words, he's just mounting evidence on the table. Look at Babylon. Look at Assyria. Look at Moab. Look at Damascus. Look at Egypt. Look at all of them. Because what you see there are little bitty three-dimensional prophecies, types and patterns of a greater judgment that's yet to come against Babylon and her rebellion against God. And so all of this is really concerned with Babylon. So it's an oracle concerning Babylon, as are all of these oracles. And that's why I'm going to spend all of our time in chapter 13, and I'm going to leave it up to you. I'll reference some, some different places in, in Isaiah 14 through 20, just to show how these themes carry through. But if you can understand 13, then you can make your way through 20 on your own and see it See the same threads going all the way through. That is of, of God's sovereignty over the nations and of the true and terrifying nature of his judgments. Okay? 
Verse 2, he says, On a bare hill, I raise a signal, a flag. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. Here, God is speaking to the Medes. The Medes are those whom he refers to there in 17. They're the ones that are going to come against Babylon in 539 BC, more than a century after Isaiah dies, 150 years later. But God right here in chapter 2 is speaking to the Medes. That is the Medo-Persian Empire. But the message is for Judah. The Medes aren't going to hear what Isaiah is preaching, but Judah will. And what does God want Judah to know? God wants Judah to know that the nations don't ultimately govern themselves. Ultimately, God governs the nations. Look at this. He says this in verse 3. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Notice what God calls the Medes. He calls them my consecrated ones or literally my holy ones. How can God refer to a wicked nation as my consecrated or holy ones? And it's because they have been set apart. They've been set apart for a specific use. Same way it's talked about the instruments in the temple. Those instruments in the temple are not in and of themselves moral objects. They're neutral, but they're called holy. Why? Because they've been set apart for specific use according to God's purposes. And the same is true for here of the Medes. They've been set apart for a specific use. God has set them apart so that they might play a significant part in fulfilling his purpose. And how is it that they fulfill God's purpose? We'll look back at verse 3. That they will execute my anger and my wrath. They will execute my anger. That they will ultimately gather together with other nations against Babylon, as we see in verses 4 and verse 5. All of these nations gathering together, which would have been common in, in ancient Near Eastern warfare, these other nations creating a coalition with Moab to come against Babylon. And they, according to verse 5, will be weapons of indignation in the hand of God to destroy the whole land of Babylon. So what we see here is that God sovereignly governs the nations. And God even uses godless rulers and nations for his purposes. And his purpose is ultimately to destroy the whole land that is all of Babylon to his glory. I just want to stop here for a moment. Because this gets us into a really significant doctrine concerning God and his dealings with the world. It's called the doctrine of God's providence. Whenever somebody is asking questions about the sovereignty of God... And of man's responsibility. Wait a minute. Are we truly free or are we robots? If we're truly free, how can God be truly sovereign? All of those kinds of questions are really concerned with God's providence. Of his dealings with the world. So when we speak of God's government over the nations. As we see here in verses 1 through 5. We are speaking about God's providence. Providence, says one theologian, is God's continued activity in the world for the realization of his plan. And that's what we see here. And a biblical view of God's providence, which we looked at, in fact, just last year as we looked at Genesis in chapters 38 to 50 in the story of Joseph, <clears throat> that we have, that a biblical view of God's providence maintains two things. It maintains God's transcendence over creation and it maintains his eminence in creation. First of all, when we talk about God's transcendence, we're talking about his otherness. That he is altogether apart from creation. Creation is not God. We're not pantheists. And creation is not in God, and God is not in creation. We're not panentheists. That would be more new agey. No, God is altogether in his essence apart from and separate from that which he has created. He is in no way dependent on his creation to be God. All that God needs in order to be God is in God himself. He doesn't need his creation for it. That's why Isaiah will say later in chapter 45, truly you are a God who hides himself. 
that God is transcendent, that he is far above us and beyond us, that his ways are higher than our ways, and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's not just a bigger and better version of us. He is altogether different from us. And so as Matthew Henry said, you've heard the phrase, I don't trust that guy as far as I can throw him. Well, Matthew Henry, the old commentator said, we are to trust God further than we can see him. There's lots of times where we can't see his hand and God is calling us to trust his heart and his purposes and his promises. And so we uphold on the one hand, God's transcendence, that he is separate from creation, but we also uphold God's eminence. That is his active involvement in creation. And of course, the supreme example of God's involvement is found in the incarnation of the son of God in the man, Jesus Christ. That in Christ, God shows us that he is not a God who is remote. He is not a God who is aloof. He is not a God who is distant and unknowable, but that he is actively involved in his creation to such an extent that he in the person of his son, Jesus, would tabernacle and dwell among us. But what exactly is the nature of God's involvement? What is he doing The Westminster Shorter Catechism helpfully summarizes the Bible's teaching like this. It says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That God preserves all things and that God governs all things. And he does so according to his holiness, his wisdom, and his power. Or as the old Puritan George Swinnick once quipped, God keeps up what he set up. That's the doctrine of providence. So God preserves all things and he governs all things. But why? The next question, of course, is to what purpose? Why does he do it? Well, he's directing all things to their appointed end. And that is to the consummation of the kingdom of God, the glorification of the Son of God, and to the ultimate good of the people of God, that is their final redemption. All of history is moving to those great and glorious ends. That everything is moving, Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. That all of history is moving to the point where every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And all of history is moving to where the church, those who are found in Christ alone by faith, in resurrected, glorified existence, are standing alone in the new Jerusalem as the final actor on the stage of history. All of history is moving to these great and glorious ends. And God's government includes everything in the external world. Everything big and everything small. Individuals and nations. Rational beings and irrational beings. Everything is under the control of God, including, Isaiah 13 through 20, the nations of the earth. But how does this control work? How does God exercise his control? Let me qualify everything I'm about to say with this first. We confess God's incomprehensibility. That does not mean that we cannot know God. It means that we cannot know God as God knows God. He is infinite. We are finite. Any attempt to draw a circle or to square in who God is by our own reason by implication, makes God smaller than our reason and makes us God in his place. God must be bigger than we can understand if God is to be God. So there's an aspect of mystery to everything that I'm about to say. John Calvin often got a bad rap for his view on predestination. But most people who give Calvin grief have really never read Calvin on predestination. What he says is you go as far as the Bible's willing to take you and you stop. Don't go wandering off in the dark forest of speculation. Too many men get lost out there and they never make it back. Oh, you go as far as the Bible will take you and then you stop and you fall to your knees in the face of the mystery of God and you worship because he's too big for us to know in the way that he knows himself. We know those things he's revealed to us. 
but he is incomprehensible. So how, in light of all of that, how does this control work? How does God exercise this control? Well, sometimes we see it's by directly wielding his own power. That is, sometimes God works above natural law or contrary to natural law. That natural law is not laws that are put in place by God so that God can withdraw and no longer interact with the world. That was the view of deism, many, the view of many of our founding fathers, and that's a heresy. That is not who God is. Natural laws are the way that God normally governs his creation. It's the way that he actively and sovereignly governs all that it is. But there are some times where God operates outside of the way that he ordinarily governs all things. And this is what the Bible refers to as a miracle. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. We see it in, in the Red Sea with the Egyptians. We see it all over the Bible of God working above and contrary to natural law, directly wielding his power in creation. But for the most part, what we find in our own lives and through the scripture is God not working directly through his power, but indirectly through what he has created. And yet the ordinary way that God works is not directly, it's indirectly that he works through created things and he works according to their nature. So many theologians call this divine concurrence. Occurrences that are happening alongside one another. Con, alongside currents. Divine concurrence. That when the creature acts, God acts simultaneously. In other words, God's activity accompanies the creature's activity at every single point without God at any point depriving the creature of his natural freedom. The creature is always operating according to his nature. And none of this is done blindly, and none of it is done randomly. That our world is not one where God is constantly adapting to his creatures. The future is not open to God. He knows exactly what's going to happen and how he's going to lead it there, and he's sovereignly guiding all of history to that end. So he's not sitting there going, oh, I wonder what they're going to do. I can imagine one of a of 100 million different options, and hopefully I pick the right one. That's not how God works with the free actions of men. That the doctrine of divine concurrence holds that, that nothing is blind or random. That, that our world is not one where God is constantly adapting and reacting to his creatures. Rather, whatever happens, though it may happen through secondary causes, happens ultimately by the hand of God who is the primary cause of all things. And he does this all according to his decree for his glory and for our good. Well, how does that relate to our text? Simply, when a nation acts, so does God. In this instance, the Medes are going to invade Babylon. Their king Cyrus led them to do so willingly in 539 BC. Yet in Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah explains that Cyrus was, quote, God's anointed, literally Messiah. He is the one who is being sent by God for God's purposes. And he goes on to say that God had grasped Cyrus's right hand, the hand of authority and of rule, that God had taken it in order to subdue nations, that God had anointed and was leading Cyrus as Cyrus was freely and willfully leading the Medo-Persian Empire to dominate Babylon. But here, we also see in verse 2, the Medes will march willingly against Babylon. They'll do so in their own power and according to their own wisdom, by their own initiative, under the leadership of King Cyrus, it says here that God himself, verse 2, commanded and summoned them. And again in verse 5, they are the weapons of his indignation against Babylon. And so when Isaiah looks out at the geopolitical landscape of the Fertile Crescent, what he doesn't see is unchecked and uncontrolled chaos at the hands of violent and ambitious men. When Isaiah looks out at the geopolitical landscape of the Fertile Crescent 
And all of these nations of Babylon and Assyria, of Moab and of Damascus and Cush and of Egypt, he sees all of these. What he sees is God. He has a God-saturated and a God-centered view of history. Just like the prophet Daniel, he understands that all of these nations rise and fall at God's command and according to God's purpose. You can see that in Daniel 4, verse 17, and again in verse 25. He sees, as Stephen Charnock put it, all those changes in the face of the world, the revolutions of empires, the desolating and ravaging wars, which are often immediately the birth of vice, ambition, and fury of princes as the royal acts of God as governor of the world. The princes are acting and ruling, and God is ruling over those who rule. Guiding and allowing all things according to his purposes, according to his holy and righteous will, to accomplish the very thing that he aims to accomplish for his glory, for that of his son, and for the good of his people. And so the king in the ancient world could do whatever he wanted, because he was sovereign. But Proverbs says, the king's heart, is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. That he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 In everything that kings and nations do, they do only that which God purposes for them to do. The most powerful men on earth are limited in their power and they cannot take one step further than God's providence permits them to take. But this raises a question, a really important one. If God determines all things, as we see here in 13, 1 through 5, in what sense then are we free? Does this mean that we are just puppets on a string or that Cyrus or that, or that the Medes or that Babylon or Assyria or any others, we're just puppets? Robots doing whatever it is that God's programmed us to do? Or, or even worse, does it make God the author of evil? Well, more than any other prophet, Isaiah is concerned to exalt God's sovereignty on the one hand, while maintaining doggedly man's responsibility before the Almighty Creator. In Isaiah 37, for instance, you don't have to turn there. In Isaiah 37, Assyria is compared to a horse that God rides. God mounts the horse and then he rides down against Israel in destructive judgment. And when the mission is complete, God puts his hook in the horse's nose and the bit in his mouth and he sends it back where it came from. Verse, 30, verse 29 in chapter 37. And so in Isaiah's picture... The energy belongs to the horse, but the direction belongs to God. Well, Isaiah is going to give us an even more radical picture in Isaiah chapter 10. Turn back just a couple of pages. We looked at this just a couple of months ago. Isaiah chapter 10. We notice in verse 5 of Isaiah 10, how does God describe the nation of Assyria? says that Assyria is the rod of my anger. In fact, here and again in verse 15, if you glance down at that, God compares Assyria to a staff, an axe, a saw, a club, and a rod in his hands. Axes and saws are lifeless tools until a carpenter puts them to use. And so it is with Assyria in relation to God and his purposes. That's what we see in verse 6. That God sends them and God commands them. See that there? And commands them specifically to do what? To take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread down Israel like the mire of the streets. And yet when you glance down real quickly at verses 16 and 19, here's what you notice. So boy, God is sovereignly using Assyria. But notice what we see in 16 and 19. That Assyria is going to be condemned by God they are going to be cut down by God because of what they did against Israel. 
You say, well, wait a minute. If God made Assyria do what they did against Israel, how could God hold Assyria accountable for what they did to Israel? And the answer, as we see in verse 7, is that he, speaking of Assyria, does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. When it says that Assyria did not so intend and his heart did not so think, what it means is that Assyria didn't mean to carry out God's will. They weren't thinking about God at all. They were operating freely according to their own ambitions. All they wanted to do was enlarge their empire. Ambition and greed and pride drove the Assyrians as God drove them to accomplish his purposes. And this much is evident in the king's proclamation in verses 12 and 13. Look at this. When the Lord has finished all of his work in Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. The heart is speaking of the intentions of the king and of the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. He is claiming for himself the very prerogative that belongs to God alone. It is his pride and his arrogance that is fueling his domination of, of the nations that are around him. But what we see here in Isaiah 10 is that God is governing and directing evil so that evil serves his holy purposes. But God is not the source of evil. The heart of the king was the source of evil. God directs it and uses it according to his sovereign purposes to fulfill his perfect ends. And so Assyria is responsible for its evil acts. Just as Babylon is and the Medes and in chapter 15, Moab, and Damascus in 17, and Egypt in chapter 19. God is sovereign over all of the nations, and for their rebellion, they will be judged. Well, when we consider the doctrine of God's providence, of his working in creation, of upholding and governing, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. That the crucifixion of the Son of God was without a doubt the worst crime that humanity had ever committed. And Peter in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 preached this, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless and evil men freely accomplished what it is that God had predetermined to take place before the foundations of the world. In fact, in his next sermon in Acts 4, Peter's going to say something similar. Listen to this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders, and the frenzied mob in Jerusalem on that day all intended evil. But God intended it for good, for the salvation of the world. What does this have to do with us? When we consider the sovereignty of God over the nations, I think first of all, it should shape the way that we view current events. It should shape the way that we interact with 24-hour news cycles and with our social media feeds. A couple days ago, a Facebook friend posted this, wished I didn't care about politics or was more apathetic because I'm feeling pretty hopeless right now. That is not how Christians who are confident in the sovereignty and providence of God look at any political situation. We have been blessed to live in a country where we have a participatory government, that we can participate in it in such a way that we can vote and act and run for office as a means of trying to do the greatest good for our neighbor. 
Most nations in the history of the world have not enjoyed that kind of privilege. It's been a wonderful experiment. But the United States is just an experiment. It will one day come to an end, and the kingdom of God, the church, will last forever. And yet, when we look at all of that, when we vote, or if we run for office, or we consider our relationship to other nations, or if our British friends are considering Brexit, and they think it's awful, or our Scottish friends think it's wonderful, or we consider about China and the mining of all of our information, and the fact that, that anybody can know almost anything about us at any given time, and that nothing is really secret about us, boy, that can tempt us to fear and anxiety on a geopolitical scale, can't it? And yet God is sovereign over the nations. The United States of America, of Donald Trump, or any Democratic candidate, China, Russia, Iran, you name it. There is not a ruler or a nation that can take one step further than God's providence allows. And God's providence always aims at the final glorification of his son and for the good of his people at the end of the age. So when we look at current events, we are not confident in men. We are not confident in governments. We do not trust in nations. We do not trust in chariots and horses and politicians. We trust in God and his promises. And when we lay our heads down at night, when the rest of the nation is anxious and freaking out, we sleep really well. Because our God rules. Amen? Amen. Secondly, if God so governs the nations, can you not trust his providence in your own life? When you consider perhaps the good providences that have come into your life, where he has blessed you and increased your joy, and when you consider all of the bad providence the bitter providences that he's brought in of pain and of sorrow, all of those bad things that he will turn to good. We should be able to look at Isaiah 13 and go, if he can so govern the nations of this planet, then certainly he can number the hair on my head. He will clothe me as he clothes the lilies of the field and he will feed me just as he does the birds of the air. I will be anxious for nothing because he's not an aloof God. He's not a distant God. He is a God that is all in with his creation, governing and sustaining it. Thirdly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what this also means is that when you stand before God, you won't be able to plead that his sovereignty made you do it and that you're not responsible. Now, I want you to consider two things. I want you to consider, first of all, how God has directed history to send his son to be crucified for sinners. That he has given such meticulous attention, effort, and detail, even on a geopolitical level, to the preservation of the seed of Abraham in order to regather what was scattered at Babel so that you, if you repent and trust in Christ, might be included in that number. Might it be that from eternity past, God has been doing all of this for you, for his glory ultimately, but that you might be brought to repent and to trust in Christ. Secondly, we need to consider the fury of God's wrath against sinners who proudly refuse Christ. And that's what we see in the second half. I don't have glad. It is 1055. And there's no way that I'm going to finish this. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. I'm going to live to preach another day. And we'll look at the rest of chapter 13 next week. But let me just leave you with this. As you consider the things in your life, not just the good providences, but even the bitter providences. And you consider how is it that God would allow such things and for what purposes? It can sometimes be hard to see. 
we are not always able to answer those questions. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. God is really good in everything that he reveals. And God is really good in everything that he conceals. And just because we can, in our finite wisdom, not conceive of good purposes for any host of things that might cause us to be anxious and to fear or even to be hurt, does not mean in God's infinite wisdom that there are not good purposes for those things. And these are moments where we have to train our hearts to trust God's word. I know it's true because God said it's true. Help me to walk and to live in such a way that takes him at his word and not the way that my heart is so often and frequently prone to deceive me. That I would look at my own life and that I would look at our world and I would look at our nation in a God-saturated, in a God-centered way. Not as a world spinning out of control. Not as a world that is, that is totally chaotic, run by unchecked men with unchecked ambitions. But of a God who is sovereignly guiding every man, every woman, every ruler, every nation, every molecule to his desired purposes for his glory and for our good. And in those moments where you have a hard time believing that, we come to the table. We remember Christ. We remember the highest expression of God's Sovereign plan being fulfilled through the purposes of, of evil men. And those things which were intended for evil, God meant not just for good, but for the greatest good. That sinners like you and sinners like me might come by his grace to repent and believe in Christ and receive eternal life that we may know and enjoy God forever. With him no longer counting us as an enemy, but as a friend. For while we were yet weak, for while we were yet sinners, for while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Amen? Let me pray and we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together.